You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Ezekiel 37. It was first uh, made its appearance on television in 1950, uh, performed by the Delta Rhythm Boys, as you see here. But the song was actually written by two brothers, James Weldon Johnson and and, uh, J. Rosamond Johnson, and first recorded by the famous Myers Jubilee Singers back in 1928. So the song dates back quite a long ways, uh, made into some Sunday school classes even into this century. So many songs and, uh, and this sermon have reflected on the meaning of Dambones, this chapter of chapter uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. It's a significant chapter. Chapter 37, at this point, the Jews have all been exiled at least for 12 years. Jerusalem has fallen. God's holy temple has been destroyed. And so many Israelites have been killed by Nebuchadnezzar and his invasions. And with that, God's people's hope is gone. They believe and feel like they have been cut off from God. And if you are cut off from God, then the idea is you have no salvation. You're lost. And as cut off as they feel, but as cut off as they feel, Ezekiel has been coming to them in the last number of chapters to remind them that God has not forgotten about them. God will still raise up a remnant. And that's what this chapter is really all about. Again, hope for God's people. So chapter 37 is a vision that has two parts to it. Verses 1 to 14 is the valley of dry bones. And verses 15 to 28 is the connecting of two sticks. The latter part isn't as familiar to us as the first. Let's read it. Chapter 37, we're going to read verses 1 to 7. We'll only read that part for now. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord said to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Let's pause for prayer for a moment. Father, thank you for your word again. This book of Ezekiel, uh, we're into the latter chapters now. And we pray that as we get into these latter chapters, that you would reserve our hearts for the full intention of what the prophecies are all about. That you would garner within our hearts this hope that needs to be there, even in this day and age, for things to come. Because, Lord, things in this day and age are getting tough. They're getting difficult. They're getting tumultuous. And, Lord, we want to be victors through it all. So, Lord, be with us in this word and teach us what you would have us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever been to a desert, someplace like Death Valley, California? My family went through uh, uh, Death Valley when I was 12 years old. It was July. 
No, it moves because maybe some of you haven't been there yet. But July in Death Valley is torturous. It is extremely hot. In fact, it is considered at times the hottest place on earth with temperatures as high as 134 degrees Fahrenheit or in Canadian dollars, that's 56 Celsius. Above, not below. We've experienced the below. <laughs> Above. Now, I don't remember what the temperature was as we were going through, but let me put it this way. Before we made the trek, we stopped for breakfast at a diner near the beginning of the highway. And all I remember was the the people of the diner saying, you cannot travel this highway during the day today. You will have to travel it at night. And you better make sure you have lots of water and your rad is topped up. It was that hot. Well, God takes Ezekiel. And he sets him down in the middle of the, a Death Valley-like scene. And what he sees in this vision is a stark contrast to what he had seen in the previous chapter. Instead of seeing fruit trees and crops and fortified cities, he sees a barren valley desert full of dried bones. This was supposed to mirror the current state of Israel. This was a scene prophesied long ago when God told Israel through Moses that if they did not uphold their end of the covenant, this would be their fate. Let me take you back to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. In other words, if you don't keep the covenant, you will be defeated before your enemies. You will come, uh, you will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in, a, in seven And you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on earth. Your carcasses will be food for the birds and the wild animals. There will be no one to frighten them away. Now, most scholars are going to say that this is clearly a picture of what God is going to do to the nation, both the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. It's a picture of the whole nation coming back from the dead, so to speak. And there's actually quite a bit of discouragement as to whether or not, or disagreement, sorry, as to whether or not this part of the chapter should be used in any way to speak about the doctrine of individual bodily resurrection. Well, I believe that we can glean something of the Old Testament idea of the afterlife from it. Doing so, we need to be careful, though, that we don't try to impose our New Testament understanding of Christian resurrection and heaven and eternity on Old Testament texts. These are different people living in a different period of time. So first of all, I think you need to understand what Jewish burial practices were like. In the Old Testament, Jews were sort of buried twice. You think, oh, wow, that would be hard. But two lunches, right? Two egg salad sandwich lunches. (laughs) When Bonnie and I were in Israel, our guide took us uh, through the cemetery that's on the Mount of Olives. Anybody walk through that at all? Not many of you? You all need to go to Israel. There's an Israel lunch, I think, somewhere along the corner here, so make sure you go. But as we're walking through the cemetery on the, on the Mount of Olives, our guide pointed out uh, these little places where there were little tombs set up. And here's what happened. Remember, this is not a 21st century Canada burial where we bury people in the ground, in a hole in the ground. This was a family tomb cut outside the side of a mountain or a hillside so that the remains could be accessed later. Why? After the body had been in the tomb for a while, some historians suggest that it was probably about at least a year, the family would return uh, to the tomb, maybe it was on the anniversary of the death, and what do you think that they would find after a year of being out in the hot, desert-like sun and exposed to bugs and animals? 
Bones, right? They're not buried in the ground. They're above ground in these tombs. Bones. All the skin and muscles and guts are gone, and all you have left is a skeleton. The family would then collect the bones and place them in a small coffin-like box called an ossuary. These are those ossuaries here in a family tomb. Some ossuaries held the bones of one person. Some of them held the bones of a few people. Now, maybe you remember reading in Exodus 13, verse 19, when Moses took the bones of Joseph with him after leaving Egypt. Remember when Israel left Egypt? He took the bones with him so that he could bury the bones in his father's, uh, Jacob's tomb in Shechem. Probably the same burial practices. The purpose of the ossuary was to group everyone as one family so that they could be together in the afterlife to await God's salvation. Now, if you remember back in Ezekiel 26, we examined the Jewish concept of the afterlife in phrases like when God says, you will go down to the pit to the people of long ago, and I will make you dwell in the earth below. These are phrases that are part of the Hebrew underworld, otherwise known as Sheol, the place of the dead, the abyss, the pit. This is the place where the dead go, both the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. And it's a, pla- it's a place of conscious existence. Now, while the unrighteous, those who are not of Israel, would never escape it, the Jews always had the hope that God would one day rescue them from the pit, from the grave, by way of a future resurrection. Now, some scholars disagree on that. But I think, th- I think it is the view that should be understood by us, since even pre-exile, before this time of Israel's existence, I think this was in their mind. Listen to Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11. This is a pre-exile psalm of David. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Does that sound like being abandoned to the pit? No. Psalm 69, verse 28. May they, that is David's enemies, be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. This idea of the life after death, is of, of not being abandoned to the grave, is a pretty common theme throughout the Psalms. It's even in other pre-exilic prophecy books like Isaiah 4 verse 3 where it says, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy and everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Sounds a bit like the book of life stuff from the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Makes you wonder if John maybe was already aware of that kind of stuff when he received his vision. But now, what Ezekiel saw was a valley of dead, dry bones that were all scattered and abandoned on a valley floor, meaning that they had no family to collect them. Some try to suggest that these are the remains of Israelite soldiers. But that's not what's in picture here. They didn't become like a vast army until after they're brought back to life. What this was a vision of was a picture of national Israel having no family burial. And that was significant in the life of a Jew. They were scattered everywhere, like in the wastelands of other nations, without anyone like Moses to reclaim their bones, meaning that they were now done as a people, as a family. 
And that's why when God asks Ezekiel in chapter 37, verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. It's not that Ezekiel didn't believe that God could raise the dead. Being a priest, he would have remembered the times in the scriptures where God did raise people from the dead before. But usually, like with the accounts of Elijah and Elisha raising the dead, those people had only been dead a short while. They still had skin on. They weren't bones yet. They weren't scattered about. I don't think Ezekiel thought that God couldn't do it, but I think maybe he wondered if Israel was maybe just a little too far gone. There, was, there wasn't a precedent for this kind of resurrection in the scriptures up until this time that Ezekiel at least knew of as a priest or that we know of. Before we question Ezekiel's faith, haven't you ever, after all that you've read in your Bible, after all that you've seen with your own eyes and experienced from God, sometimes have you ever doubted that maybe God could do certain things? That maybe there were certain things that were beyond him? What circumstances are happening these days in your life that makes you question God's ability to deliver you and to bring you back to life? Are you letting the circumstances of your life deny what you already know to be true about God and your destiny? How powerful do you think God is to save you? We'll come back to those questions a little bit later. Ezekiel 37, verses 4 to 7. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I got the, the guys in the background of my head every time I hear that. And this is what the sovereign Lord says. Say to these bones, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. Remember what we've learned already in this series before, that prophecy isn't just future telling, okay? It's also announcing the will of God. And when Ezekiel makes the announcement to the dry bones, what happens? They begin to rattle, they begin to shake, and they begin to take on the semblance of life, but they're missing something yet, aren't they? They're missing the breath of life, the breath of God. This is the same animating breath, I believe, that we see in the Garden of Eden when God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Verse 9, and he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe on these slain and they, that they may live. So I prophesied as, I was, as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Now, some commentators question whether this is some kind of animating wind or whether this was the Holy Spirit. The reference from the four winds, I don't believe is a geographical term in, in a phrase in nature, even though the ancients believed that wind actually came, scientifically in their day and age, from the north, from the east, from the south, from the west. They didn't understand how wind was created the, it, like we do today. But rather, it is a reference describing, I believe, the everywhere present nature of God the Holy Spirit. And being everywhere, this is also a hint that God is still with them. Even in the everywhere that they are, northeast, southwest, the four, from the four winds where they have been exiled to. Not just Babylon, but every direction in the world. 
See, if this sounds familiar to you, John chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, this is Jesus. Jesus answered. He's telling Nicodemus this. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus is very clearly talking about not just, not wind, but the Spirit of God. Even Yahweh clarifies, qualifies his vision into Ezekiel in verse 14 of Ezekiel 37. He says, I will put my Spirit in you, and you will live. Spirit equals life. Wind doesn't equal life unless it's the Spirit. And then he says, and I will settle you in the land. Wind and spirit in this instance are the same Holy Spirit. And that wraps up for Ezekiel the question that Yahweh was asking at the beginning. Verse 3, he, that is God, asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, sovereign Lord, you alone know. So this is what the sovereign Lord knows. And this is what is the true point of the passage so far. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Even though the house of Israel felt cut off from God, they weren't. They were still his people. Despite all that they had done to rebel against him, God would still revive his people and regather them as his family from all the nations, from the four winds to which they were exiled. And even though we know the truth now, this side of the cross and Pentecost and this side of the exile, we, why do we now ask ourselves questions sometimes like, is God really able to do this? After all that we've seen in our Bibles and, and seen with our own eyes, how could we ever feel forsaken or cut off from God? If you do feel forsaken or cut off from God, what causes that? Well, I hope by now, because you know what brought that about for Israel, that you now know why you would feel cut off from God. You may be cut off from God, but he hasn't forgotten about you or that he loves you or that loved one maybe that you are thinking of who's acting like they're, they're cut off from God, who have maybe forsaken the Lord. Is there hope? The point of the passage is God remembers his family, and he brings them back to life. How is this cutoff feeling resolved? Verse, John chapter 3, verse 3. Let's go back to Jesus and Nicodemus. It says, very truly I tell you, Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born of the Spirit. How are you born again? Through repentance and being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Are you prepared to go there? Israel wasn't at this point. They weren't ready to repent still. 
But will you repent and will you be filled with the Holy Spirit? If you feel cut off from God, are you ready to do what's needed to come to life? And this is what you pray for, too, when you know of loved ones who are cut, who've cut themselves off from God. Pray that they repent. Pray that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they can't come back to life. Pray. Well, that's the part. There's a part two to Ezekiel 37 as well. Verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Joseph, that is, to Ephraim, and all the Israelites associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. When your people ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and out and of the uh, Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on, and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone, I will gather them from around, and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and there will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with the idols and the vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. You don't have to spend too long in these, past, in the, in these verses here to see the imagery is pretty straightforward. Ezekiel is told to take a wooden stick and write on it belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Judah was the son of, jo- son of Jacob, who's also called Israel. And his first wife was Leah. And they produced Judah, one of the sons. They take, and then he's supposed to take another stick and write on it belonging to Joseph, that is Ephraim, Joseph, the son of Jacob, and Rachel, Jacob's second wife, and all the Israelites associated with him. Verse 17, join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. Basically, what we're talking about here is a unified Israel. All 12 tribes, both halves of the divided kingdom are made into one. And it will be Yahweh who will be holding those sticks together in the middle. Exciting? Yes. But that hasn't been the situation politically or spiritually since Solomon. In their time, that's 500 years. And not only that, but the northern kingdom is gone. It's been decimated. Israel, the northern part, is gone. How can God join together Judah in the south with a northern people when there is no northern people anymore? Well, what did we just read about the Valley of Dry Bones? So when this takes place, when will this take place? Well, we're, they were in the 6th century here in Ezekiel, with Ezekiel. We know that the, the Medo-Persians defeat the Babylonians in 539 B.C. when King Cyrus took over Babylon. Listen to uh, Ezra, chapter 1 to 4, uh, 1 verses 1 to 4. 
It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken through Jeremiah, the, word, the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. All his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord. And the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Sounds a bit like the Exodus, doesn't it? it sounds like a fulfillment, though, too, doesn't it? Well, maybe in part it is. But, I think, but think this through. Those who return under Ezra, they were just the southern kingdom of Judah. Verse 5 says that in Ezra 1. When the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, that side of the family, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So there's no northern kingdom of Israel in this return. There's no Ephraim or Joseph. Ephraim was Joseph's younger son and the dominant tribe in the northern part of Israel. But the northern kingdom was done when the, when the Assyrians invaded. They just sort of got absorbed into the culture. So Yahweh must be talking about a different future, a different date, more distant in the future than this time in Ezra the priest and Nehemiah and so on. Good thing, is, uh, good thing Yahweh explains it himself here for us. Ezekiel 37, verse 24 and 26. My servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. I will make a covenant of peace with them, a new covenant. And it will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. Again, we've talked about this in weeks past. That biblical prophecy, there is sort of an already but not yet aspect to prophecy. There's usually an immediate or near-immediate unfolding of the prophecy, like the temple of Zerubbabel uh, under, under Ezra the priest and, uh, and Nehemiah coming in to rebuild the walls. Zerubbabel was a governor of Judah at the time. So there's sort of an, a near-immediate fulfillment of that. It wasn't too far into the future of Ezekiel 37. But then there's another unfolding, and even another, and maybe even more in the future. We know that this king is in the line of David, and that's who? That's Jesus. And there's plenty of biblical references to, to tell us that. So we know that the rebuilding of the temple by Zerubbabel after the exile was done, and the return under Ezra, and the rebuilding of the walls by, uh, by Nehemiah, that was not the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. The unfolding, an unfolding, yes, but not the fulfillment of the two sticks prophecy. But again, you have things that unfolded with Jesus, but not fulfilled until Pentecost. Listen to verse 27. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Yet even with Pentecost, there's still an already but not yet feel to it. Prophecy is still unfolding because there's still some outliers. There's still some things not yet fulfilled in the prophecy of Ezekiel. And we know under the new covenant in Jesus that those things will not be fulfilled until the very end of the age when Jesus returns. And he wraps up human history. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. This is post-Pentecost. Romans 11, verse 25 to 27. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, my brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Doesn't that sound like Ezekiel 37? That's still future, isn't it? That's our future, isn't it? We are those who have already come into the new Israel, but there's many who have not yet come in. And so let us be diligent to share our message of God's saving power with as many people in our life network as we possibly can. Because the day is coming up. God is going to wrap up everything. To wrap up Ezekiel 37, we know that this is now a lot more than an old spiritual song of dem dry bones. It's even a lot more than just an end times prophecy. It's about what has already unfolded to be a lesson to us and what is yet to be unfolded. Something to await and pray for and work for. It is the complicated but redemptive work of God alone to redeem a people who were literally cut off from him because of their idolatry. But because he is faithful to his promises, he will yet accomplish them by his own sovereign power. Amen? Amen. Ezekiel 37 stands as a lesson to any of us who feel like our sin has more power to damn us than God's power to save us. But we, as we learn today, Everyone that we know, even the nations should know, we should know by now that there has been an unfolding already of these prophecies, but more is yet to come. The Lord himself will make his Israel holy when his sanctuary is among them forever. Read the last chapter of the book of Revelation. We know that that's true because we have been given the Holy Spirit to make us holy, to be a holy people, a holy priesthood, a holy people who are called out of darkness into his wonderful light and to declare his praises. Friends, once you weren't a people, but now, according to the Bible, you are a people. You're the family of God, and one day he will collect all of us at his return. And once we have received mercy, once we had not been received, we had not received mercy, but one day, no, not one day, even now we receive mercy. We receive mercy. Friends, this all started for us as Gentiles at the cross. I did my 23 DNA, 23 DNA thing, history thing, genealogy thing. I have no Jewish blood in me. I am full on Gentile, but I am in because of the cross of Christ. Amen?
and so are you. That much has unfolded already, and that much we can put our hope in and we can anchor our trust to, a God who is sovereign. And if you have friends or family that you are continually praying for, pray for their repentance and the filling of the Holy Spirit so that they may share in the mysteries and the wonders of the cross to join together a people who otherwise could not be rejoined because they were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he has made us alive in Christ. Amen.